morning, we're back on the beaten path. We're back in the book of Luke. If you haven't been around our church very long, I would commend you to go back and, and give a listen to some of the, the sermon podcasts from back in the spring. We jumped into the book of Luke around Advent of last year. It's a great time to jump into Luke's gospel account as he begins with the birth of Jesus, uh, the Christmas story. And so we worked our way all the way through most of chapter nine of Luke's gospel account, and then we took a break. We hit the pause button because uh, in South Metro Atlanta area, we're close enough to the airport. People have the means that they travel a good bit. And so working through a narrative in the summer months, we, we didn't want people to get lost in terms of the story that Luke is telling. So we hit the pause button for the better part of the summer. We jumped into a series on the seven deadly sins as seen through the book of Proverbs um, had some one-off sermons, some standalone sermons in the, in the month of August, and we are now back at it in the book of Luke, journeying our way on to the end of this great book of the Bible. I don't know about you, I'm pretty jazzed. This book of the Bible is fascinating. Without it, we wouldn't have the story of the wee little man Zacchaeus. We wouldn't have the parables of the good Samaritan and the prodigal son you wouldn't have the story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, which shows us the beauty of Christ in all of Scripture, one of our key values as, as a church. The prequel to, to the book of Acts, the book of Luke is, written just a, a few decades following the resurrection of Jesus by the man whose name it bears. Uh, most scholars argue that, that Luke is a physician of Gentile descent on the basis of the Apostle Paul's description in Colossians chapter 4. We know that Luke made trips with the Apostle Paul leading all the way up to his imprisonment and martyrdom. We know that Luke was an accomplished writer, his use of, of the, the Greek incredibly refined. Aside from that, we, we don't know a whole lot about Luke's life. And he doesn't record a great deal about himself. He doesn't really want us to know a whole lot about his life. He does want us to know a lot about Jesus in fact, the books of, of Luke and Acts make up more content, think about this, than all of Paul's letters combined. And they're all about Jesus Christ. His entrance into the world, his teaching, ministry, and miracles, his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. In the book of Luke, we read about what Jesus taught and did on earth. In the book of Acts, we read about what Jesus taught and did from heaven. Both books declaring the hope of a God whose zealous ambition is to seek and save the lost. A God overcome with love, famous in Luke's gospel account, for those on the fringes of society. As Luke tells the story of a messianic king having come to, to rescue the poor, the downcast. R.T. France, who's written one of the better commentaries on the book of Luke, he says this. He says, Luke's story is famous for its broad sympathy with the marginalized and the disadvantaged, the poor and the sick, the harassed and the demon-possessed, widows and bereaved parents, women and children, the social underworld of tax collectors and sinners, the Gentiles and even the Samaritans. To all in their different needs, salvation and wholeness, he says, came through the ministry of Jesus who came to proclaim good news to the poor. And Luke took delight in using their stories to illustrate the dawning kingdom of God in which the last will be first and the first last. It's that great story that, that Luke is out to tell. And it's that great story that you and I, we get the privilege of stepping into the pages of in the months to come. Right out of the gate, and if you were around for the beginning of this series, you know this, Luke makes crystal clear the aim of his writing, coming back to the very first words 
of this book. He says, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, Luke says, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Right, there were several written collections of Jesus' words and works circulating in Luke's day, written by those who had seen Jesus with their own eyes. Luke had not personally witnessed the miracles and ministry of Jesus himself, and yet he sensed the Holy Spirit calling him to put pen to paper, and so he committed himself to a careful investigation of Jesus' life, Jesus' teaching, Jesus' ministry, consulting eyewitnesses and traditions with the professionalism of an investigative journalist in an effort to compile an orderly, reliable account of his own concerning, as he says, the things that have been accomplished or fulfilled. Meaning that, that Luke's writing, it's not simply a historical account, though it is with all of its historical detail. But more than that, it's a declaration of Jesus as the fulfillment of God's redemptive promises. As I mentioned several times throughout this series, Luke composed this writing that we might know, that we might have certainty. In the words of one commentator, Luke's gospel account is the gospel of knowing for sure. Luke writes that, that you and I might have certainty regarding the Son of Man who came to seek and save the lost, a certainty of faith that you and I must prof profess for ourselves. But more than that, and we're going to get into to this this morning, more than that, Luke writes that we might follow Jesus as our Lord and God, as an outworking of the sure knowledge of who he is. It's what it means to be a disciple. Luke's going to bring us face to face this morning with a story about discipleship, a story of what it means to follow Jesus, a story that Luke includes that we might not only see Jesus for who he is, the Lord's anointed having come, that we might believe on him, that we might repent of our sin and trust in him. Yes and amen to that. But two, that we might leave our nets, so to speak, and follow him, giving our lives to him in glad submission. And so it's with that said that I invite you to open up your Bible this morning to Luke chapter 9. We're going to be in verses 51 through 62, about a dozen verses. If you don't have a Bible, you'll be able to track with this morning's passage up on the screen behind me. As you're opening up the scriptures, I'm definitely going to pray for us. Uh, on a couple of levels. One, just the nature of, of preaching from notes in a different way. Um, but two, uh, my wife is out of town this weekend, left me with the kids, which left me with my greatest nightmare, namely fixing little girls' hair. Um, that terrifies me more than public speaking. Um, and, and so uh, trying to accomplish that this morning, uh, I think it was on try number three that uh, I finally got it down with each of our kids, which means that I took half a dozen attempts to, to get there. And so uh, I'm gonna pray, get a little bit of a reset button as we open the scriptures together, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning desperate for you, desperate for your word. Your word is supremely authoritative, 
we submit ourselves to it this morning. Lord Jesus, uh, you do not... You do not hold back the punches, so to speak, as we dive back into this series. Um, rather, as we'll see this morning, in, in your word, uh, you, you bring a sobering, hard message for us. And yet, our very joy and good is at stake in, in not only receiving this message, but submitting ourselves, not just to your word, but to you. And so I, I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would move in this place apart from which we're hopeless, apart from which this is an exercise in futility, we need you. Would you do what only you can do? Or that we might walk out of here with not only a better grasp of what it means to truly follow you, Jesus, but committed to walking the Calvary road. I pray that you would do a great work in our hearts and in our lives, that we would be changed, that our families would be changed, that this church would be changed, that our neighborhoods and workplaces would be changed, that this community would be changed. God, would you do what only you can do? In the name of our risen Savior and King, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. So at this point in in Luke's gospel account, If I can give us a previously on Luke, you know, one of those Netflix sort of things. Jesus has been proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom in the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Good news to the poor, liberty to the captives and oppressed, recovery of sight to the blind, the year of the Lord's favor, the messianic fulfillment of the Isaiah scroll going back to chapter 4. All the while performing miracle after miracle, authenticating the truth of his message all throughout the Galilean countryside. Healing lepers and paralytics, casting out demons and raising the dead. Part one of of this great redemptive two-act play, you might say. The first act meant to answer the question, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus who calms the wind and the waves with his voice? Who is this Jesus who makes blind men see, lame men walk? Who is this Jesus who casts out demons by the legions? Who is this Jesus who raises people from the dead? The first act is meant to answer the question, who is this Jesus of Nazareth? And so it makes sense that the the curtain would close, so to speak, as Peter declares, chapter 9, verse 20, you are the Christ of God. To use the imagery I've I've brought before us in the past, the house lights come up, we we all get up for intermission, going, I'd follow Jesus. I mean, he, he clearly speaks as one with authority, He clearly exhibits great power. People are looking for a Messiah. He seems to be exhibiting some Messiah-like qualities, I would say. The call to follow Jesus is pretty compelling at this point. Imagine the intermission, the questions swirling through people's minds. What what is he going to do next? What kind of crazy miracle is he going to bring about in in this next moment, this next scene? How is he going to resolve this West Side Story rivalry with the Pharisees? How is that going to go down? I'm placing my bet on the one raising people from the dead. The one calming the wind and the waves with his voice. House lights are brought down. Curtain opens. Without so much as a blink, the second act begins with these words. Luke chapter 9, verses 21 and 22. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, 
saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. You just see the gaping mouths in the theater. What, what did he just say? All of a sudden, who cares about popcorn? You got a twist in the plot. Nothing more important than trying to make sense of where this thing's going now. Did I hear you rightly, Jesus? Sounded like you used the word suffer, rejected, killed. And you're not talking about the bad guys, the villains. You're talking about you. You can see why, according to Matthew and Mark's gospel accounts, Peter would reply, that ain't going down, Jesus. That's not going to happen. That's not how this story is going to play out. First act is meant to answer the question, who is Jesus? The second act is meant to answer the question, why is he here? What has he come to do? As the curtain opens on act two, Jesus answers that question immediately, saying, I'm here to suffer and die. The king must die. Prophecy that the disciples struggle to accept all the way up to the very last chapter of Luke's gospel account. As you see the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, devastated disoriented. Why must the king die? Psalm 49, verses 7 and 8. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. The Bible declares, many of you know this, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the wages of our sin, death. Someone has to die. Someone has to bear the curse See it in movies all the time. The idea of substitutional sacrifice. My top of the list favorite, Bing Bong. Sacrificing himself so that joy can be rescued out of the pit of despair. There's this theme of, of redemption through sacrifice that's threaded into the tapestry of our world, of our story. We cannot seem to escape it. Even Hollywood. If you pick up the story in chapter 9, verse 51... Luke tells us, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This morning's passage brings us up to the point in Luke's gospel account where Jesus begins to, to direct his gaze toward the city of Jerusalem, the city in which his very words would be fulfilled, the redemptive promise of a crucified and risen Messiah. Everything up to this point in Luke's gospel account helping us to see just how desperate for act two we really are. We need the cross and empty tomb. Jerusalem now the goal, the focal point of where the story's headed. Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. That language here indicating firm resolution in the original Greek or fixed purpose. That Jesus was born to die. Our hearts are meant to leap out of our chests as we see Jesus with eyes fixed toward Jerusalem. Don't miss this. Firmly resolved to die in your place, in my place. Committed to that forward march at great cost to himself. Praise Jesus that his gaze remained fixed. Verse 52. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Just as Jesus was rejected in the beginnings of his ministry in Galilee, 
in his hometown synagogue of Nazareth, going all the way back to chapter 4. Here Jesus is rejected in the beginnings of his journey to Jerusalem. The Calvary Road, a Calvary Road from beginning to end. In this case, not at all that surprising, right? Many of you, if you study the scriptures, you know Jews and Samaritans, they weren't exactly exchanging friendship bracelets back in the day. They didn't have a great history with each other. The Samaritans opposed the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem when the Jews returned from Babylonian captivity in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. The Samaritans also built their own temple at Mount Gerizim as a rival temple to the temple in Jerusalem. Not to mention the fact that uh, they intermingled, the, the, the Samaritans did paganism and Judaism. What is surprising is that Jesus would choose the map quest route that ran him right through the heart of Samaria. It was the custom of most Galilean Jews to travel around Samaria on their way to Jerusalem in order to avoid Samaritans altogether. But remember where this story's headed. Salvation and wholeness through the ministry of Jesus for Samaritans too. What does Jesus get for it at this point in the story? Rejection. Verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? James and John, the sons of thunder. Good nickname, right? So consumed with the Samaritans' rejection of Jesus and perhaps even their own hatred of these people that their desire is to call down the wrath of God. Like Elijah with the prophets of Baal, 1 Kings chapter 18. Failing to remember the very teachings of Jesus himself, that stuff about being merciful and loving your enemies. Completely supernatural love without limits. That Jesus' first coming, it wasn't a day of judgment. It was a time for mercy. It was a call to repentance. Jesus wasn't marching toward triumphalism, calling down the wrath of God on his way to the city of God. No, he was marching toward his death so that sinners who deserve fire from heaven might receive mercy and forgiveness. Which is why Luke tells us, verse 55, but he turned and he rebuked them and they went on to another village. Sons of thunder, they received the thunder of Jesus' rebuke. One of those Narnian moments where you see Aslan roar. The kindness of the Lord ultimately leading to repentance for these men. As John, think about this. John, according to Acts chapter 8, verse 25, would go on to take the gospel, quote, to many villages of the Samaritans. Maybe even returning with the gospel to this very village upon which he had once desired to call down the wrath of God. Verse 57. And they were going along the road, and as they were, someone said to him, to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, this is pretty providential timing. Jesus has just set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. No turning back on the Calvary road for Jesus. And he immediately encounters three men who express a willingness to follow him. They don't reject Jesus as the Samaritans had just done. That's good. And yet they don't truly understand what it means to follow him. The cost of discipleship. Luke presenting us with a, a sobering question to wrestle with for ourselves. Namely, do I myself understand what it truly means to follow Jesus? Am I with him on the Calvary road? Now listen, most of us, 
myself included, our inclination is to say, yeah, obviously, I'm a Christian, nothing to wrestle with here, and I would just implore you to wrestle a little bit this morning. To the first of these men, verse 58, Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, son of man has nowhere to lay his head. The first man seems to express something of an understanding of true discipleship in declaring a willingness to follow wherever Jesus may lead. Wherever you go, Jesus, I'm in. And yet Jesus knows he's Jesus after all. He knows that the man hasn't truly counted the cost. Foxes may venture into the vineyards to forage for food. They can always return to their dens for safety, for comfort, for rest. Birds may spread their wings and fly. They can always return to their nests. Not so for me, Jesus says. The Calvary Road is not one of comfort. Jesus, having stepped into the slums of human history in order to carry out the Father's plan of redemption, he presents this man with a question as to which of the two, comfort or Christ, is seated on the throne of his heart. That's sobering for a guy like me whose deepest root idol is comfort. Calvary Road, that question alone enough to level us as it pertains to our own devotion to Jesus in the comfortable world in which many of us live. Is comfort seated on the throne of our hearts or is it Christ who's truly seated there? Is he preeminent? To another, he said, verse 59, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. At first glance, I mean, that seems like a reasonable request, right? Surely Jesus won't have a problem with a man burying his own kin. After all, very few things were more important in Jewish tradition than family loyalty and responsibilities. One of which was providing a loved one with a proper burial. It was a good thing. In fact, it was one of the greatest responsibilities of the eldest son to arrange the funeral and burial of his father. To not do so would have brought shame upon the family. What does Jesus say to this man? Verse 60, Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Might appear to be a shocking statement on the part of Jesus, going above and beyond the call to a willingness to abandon comfort for the sake of Christ. And yet, many scholars believe that this man's father is not yet deceased. That in those days, in that culture, people buried their loved ones within 24 hours, sitting with the body until it was laid to rest. So that if this man's father were truly dead, he wouldn't be on the road with Jesus. He'd be doing the very thing he's asking Jesus to go and do. So that many scholars argue that this man's father, he may have been elderly, but not yet deceased. Even so, we might say, well, this man seems to have a good argument in asking Jesus to go back home and be with his elderly father, namely the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. I mean, surely one of the greatest displays of obedience to such a command comes in honoring their, our, our parents in their old age. I actually preached on that when we worked our way through the series on the Ten Commandments. That was one of the applications. But Jesus, again, sees beneath the request to the man's heart-level intentions. 
Namely, that he's using his family as an excuse in delaying his commitment to Christ. Lord, let me first. It's commitment to Christ with conditions attached. Which in all honesty is prevalent in the 21st century American church. Christianity on my terms. Here Jesus not only presses on an idol, but the greater question of how worthy Jesus is in this man's eyes. I would present before us this morning, how how would you finish that sentence? I ask myself the same question. Lord, I'll follow you, but first let me. And here's the, the truth. Most of us would finish that kind of sentence with good things. A reminder that our greatest hindrances to following Jesus, to discipleship, doesn't oftentimes have to do with wicked things. Rather, good things that become seated on the throne of our hearts. And therefore, we can all the more justify them in not walking with Christ down the Calvary Road. Yet another said, verse 61, I told you Jesus wasn't holding back punches. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. I'm not asking to go be with my aging parents until the day they die, Jesus. I'm simply asking to say goodbye to my family. That seems reasonable. And yet again, Jesus knows that he's dealing with a divided heart here. One that in looking back may be lost forever. Never to return to Christ. Which is why we're told, verse 62... Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus pulls from that agrarian imagery of his day in order to drive home the point. To look back when plowing a field would lead to crooked furrows. Just like looking back when driving down the road will swerve you out of your lane pretty quickly. For always looking back on what we've given up to follow Jesus we'll undoubtedly veer off the gospel path. We'll miss Jesus altogether. Like wilderness wandering Israel, who thought it would be better to return to Egypt. That you say it this way, as Jesus fixed his eyes on Jerusalem, so we are to fix our eyes on Jesus. Such a statement on the part of Jesus, emphatically declaring his divine authority, apart from which such strong statements would be absolutely ridiculous. Why should any of us unwaveringly fix our eyes on Jesus and do so on his terms if he's nothing more than a good teacher? That's silly. Why should any of us unwaveringly fix our eyes on Jesus and on his terms if he's nothing more than some pithy philosopher? That's crazy. Who is this Jesus who calms the wind and the waves with his voice? Who is this Jesus who makes blind men see and lame men walk? Who is this Jesus who casts out demons by the legions and raises the dead? Answer, the son of God worth giving our lives to follow without terms and conditions. Not only Christ our savior, but Christ our Lord. I've said it before, you can't divorce the two. Notice that Notice that we don't get any indication of how these three men respond. It's just like the the parable of the prodigal son or 
as has been better termed in recent history, the parable of the two lost sons, because where you're left at the end of that parable is with the older religious brother looking in on the party. And the question for the Pharisee sitting around Jesus as he tells that parable is, what are you gonna do? You gonna join this celebration or are you gonna stand on the outside grumbling and complaining? Same thing here. We're left to speculate. And there's reason for that. Luke means for us to wrestle with these words for ourselves, to ask ourselves if we've counted the cost. The road to Jerusalem, so to speak, it's a hard road. As a good friend recently put it to me, and I needed to hear this, he said, justification is Christ dying for us. Sanctification is us dying with Christ. That's the Calvary road. It's a hard road, but Jesus is worth it if he truly is who he says he is. If he's not, he's not worth it. But if he is who he says he is, who Luke tells us he is, he's worth it. Jesus was testing each of these men to see if he was, in fact, their greatest treasure. They wanted to follow him, and his response, really? Like the the rich young ruler, really? Here's what it'll cost you. You love me that much? And it's different for each of us. If we encounter Jesus on that path, it might not be comfort, it might not be family, but he knows us. He's alive and seated on the throne of heaven this morning. He knows you. He isn't saying we all have to embrace a life of homelessness. He isn't saying that we'll all have to abandon our families for the sake of the gospel. He's pressing on our idols. He's exposing our terms and conditions. Is he your greatest treasure? Is he your greatest joy and hope? Is he your deepest security? I would put before us this morning, what is Jesus asking you to lay down? What is he asking me to lay down? Those idols that are standing in the way of us truly following him. Make no mistake about it, Jesus isn't calling us to give up anything he hasn't given up himself. Again, his march toward Jerusalem to die in the place of sinners without for a second looking back from the plow, hallelujah, said every sinner. Jesus calls us to go where he's already gone, to live lives of sacrifice for the sake of the gospel, to live lives of generosity for the sake of the gospel, our time and how we manage it, our talent and how we refine it for his glory, our treasure and how we steward it. Counting everything as lost, to use Paul's language, for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. I've said it before, and this won't be the last time I say it, Christianity is not easy believism. I prayed a prayer back in the day. I meant it. I got my ticket to heaven. I'm just going to coast to my death now. That's not real Christianity. Jesus says, you want to follow me, two things are required. Going back to chapter 9, verse 23, self-denial and cross-bearing. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer says in his great work, The Cost of Discipleship, when Christ bids a man to follow him, he bids that man to come and die. When you became a Christian, the Holy Spirit, I believe this is John Piper's imagery. I don't want to plagiarize it. This idea that when you became a Christian, the Holy Spirit busted down the walls of your kingdom like a Sherman tank made a beeline for the castle, headed toward the throne, and promptly executed you so that Jesus could take his place in your life as the enthroned one. 
Jesus presents us with a question. Will you give up your life for my sake? Christianity is Jesus on the Calvary Road asking, are you with me? Our face like his set like flint. Is that what you signed up for? If not, you did not sign up for Christianity. Following Jesus will cost us our kingdoms, our ambitions, our glory, our lives. Which brings me to the million dollar question, why would anybody sign up for that? Saw it in the study of Ecclesiastes. You can make the big bucks. You have the perfect family. You can buy the perfect house. Do all those things and, and end up buried under the rubble of your own kingdom when all's said and done. Some might say, well, that sounds a lot better than self-denial. Sounds a whole lot better than cross-bearing. And I would say to use this morning's imagery... Those are the words of a person who can't seem to take their eyes off of that which they've given up. Looking back from the plow and therefore missing, failing to see the beauty and supreme worth of the one who is before them. Again, this verse makes its way into the pulpit of this church, I don't know, three, four times a year. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven Jesus says, it's like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Not begrudgingly, in his joy. This man sees something in this field so priceless that emptying his bank account in order to obtain it seems profitable for him. That seems like a good idea. Like the woman with her alabaster flask of perfumed oil going back to Luke chapter 7. Like the Apostle Paul, Philippians chapter 3. I was circumcised, Paul says, on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, Paul says, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss, as rubbish, as garbage, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Said this before as well. Say it again. No one grumbles his or her way into the kingdom. And coming face to face with the supreme worth of God in Jesus Christ. He's the treasure hidden in a field. He's the pearl of great value. C.S. Lewis, the weight of glory. Another quote that makes its way usually once a year. We're good for it, I guess. He says that there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing. I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Self-denial and cross-bearing is the forsaking of mud that we might enjoy a holiday at the sea. 
doesn't mean life will be easy. It does mean that we gain in the end, saints, if we lose what we lose for the sake of Christ. It really boils down to this, and I think we're going to have to sit with this through the remainder of this series over and over again, and Luke means for us to. Jesus is either infinitely valuable, worth giving up everything to gain, or he's not. There is no third way. That cultural, nominal Christianity thing is a lie. There is no third option. Luke has made that clear numerous times over. He will continue to do it. Putting us in front of a fork in the road, two paths diverging in a yellow wood. Are you with me, Jesus says, or are you not? R.C. Sproul says it this way. When it comes right down to it, you either deny Christ and follow yourself, or you deny yourself and follow Christ because you can't follow Christ and yourself. Jesus says, crown me or crucify me. Deny yourself or deny me. The road on which we follow Jesus is the Calvary road. Like the three men in this morning's passage, we're presented with the sobering question, will we set our face toward Jerusalem? No turning back. Trusting that that on the other side of the Calvary road is the hope of resurrection, an empty tomb. True and everlasting life born out of the ashes of God's sanctifying grace. That's where this thing is headed, church. And so I I invite you to continue down this path, this journey through the book of Luke, and to see what the Lord might do in our lives. He's going to rattle us. He's going to mess us up over and over again. But we're going to walk away happier for it if we're truly receiving and understanding and submitting ourselves to what he's trying to do in our lives through the scriptures. In a moment, we get to posture ourselves in a couple of of ways through our collective worship. One of those would be through the receiving of the Lord's Supper. If you missed it on your way in, there are communion cups on the back table. You're welcome to go grab one of those over the course of these last few songs. You're welcome to take the bread whenever you're ready to do so, representing the broken body of Jesus and to dip it in the cup, representing his shed blood. To sit with, to 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 marvel at, to soak in the wonder of the fact that Jesus didn't turn back from the plow. And if if he had, we would be under the fire being called down from heaven. Our prayer is that the Lord's Supper would be sweet this morning as we receive it, as we acknowledge he set his face to Jerusalem and, and he went all the way to the end faithfully. And that we might come to him with our song as well. I think we're going to sing, I have decided to follow Jesus in, in just a few minutes. And that's not a song that we sing once and then just throw it in the back seat. That's a song that our hearts need to grab hold of over and over and over and over again. We, we may need like just a one song Spotify playlist that just keeps playing that, that song on repeat until the day we die or Jesus returns. Just reminding us, yes, yes, I'm with you, Jesus. Let's sing that. And let's acknowledge that, that 
We're a mixture of belief and unbelief, but Lord Jesus, we want our words to, to, to mean something as they come out of our mouths and beyond that as we leave this place and live our lives for your glory. Let's bring him the worship that he so richly deserves. He's not a pithy philosopher solely. He's not a good teacher solely. He's the son of God, alive and reigning, seated on the throne of heaven, and he's worthy of our song.